Two, what did I do to hurt them? Column three, which part of self is affected? Column four, what feelings did I create in others? And column five, which character defect caused me to do that in the first place? Just like I did with the other sheets. And we'll be doing step four. Fifth column, we see all the information now we'll need again for five, six, and seven. First column, all those names will come off of this one and be added to the sheet to be used later on for steps eight and nine. And when we're through with this sheet, then we've gathered up all the information we need now for steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine. How long did it take us to do this thing? How long have we been talking about it? Three, three and a half hours, all told? That's about as long as it takes to do the inventory. You really, really don't need to spend a lot of time on this inventory. Just follow the directions, fill these little sheets out, gather up the information, see what you've learned from it, and then you can go ahead with the rest of the program. So we can't really do five, six, seven, eight, and nine until we have completed step four. Let's see what the book says. If we've been thorough about our personal inventory, we have written down a lot. We have listed and analyzed our resentments. Now, a lot of people don't like the word analyze. But to analyze something simply means to get down to the truth of it. This is another word that Bill uses. We've taken an honest, truthful, analytical, moral inventory. All of it meaning the truth. Now, he didn't say it, but we've listed and analyzed our fears. We've listed and analyzed our sexual harms. We've listed and analyzed our harms other than sexual. We've begun to comprehend their futility and their fatality. We've commenced to see their terrible destructiveness. Now, here's another promise. And again, we say you don't have to wait till you get to step 12 to get something. We have begun to learn patience, tolerance, patience, and goodwill toward all men, even our enemies. My God, what a personality change for an alcoholic. And all we've done is step four. For we look on them as sick people. We have listed the people we've hurt by our conduct and are willing willing to straighten out the past if we can. In this book, you read again and again that faith did for us what we could not do for ourselves. We hope you are convinced now that God can remove whatever self-will has blocked you off from Him. If you already made a decision... Step three. ...and an inventory of your grosser handicaps... Step four. You have made a good beginning. That being so, you have swallowed and digested some big chunks of truth about yourself. Isn't that something? Hmm? Now, I don't know whether you guys have noticed or not, but nearly all the information in the big book on sex is on page 69. It really is. I don't know that that got any meaning or anything. It just happens to be on page 69. We heard a story about a young lady who who was fairly new to AA, been sober just a few months, and 
And she went to her sponsor and she said, sponsor, I've got a problem. And her sponsor said, what is it? And she said, well, it's this sexual thing. She said, anything I've ever done in a sexual area, tried to attract a member of the opposite sex, has always been while drinking. And she said, sober, I just don't know what to do and how to function in this area. The sponsor said, well, go home and get out your book. Read page 69. Do what it says and everything will be okay. So the young lady went home, got out her book and proceeded to read. But she got confused on page numbers. Instead of page 69, she read page 96. Just for the hell of it, go to your book and see what it says in page 96. I think that's one of the most appropriate things I've ever read. It just goes on and on and on and on. Let's, let's take about a 15-minute break. We'll come back and start finishing this thing up. It's not going to take too long now. By the way, by the way, the winning ticket is still on the roll. Nobody has... 72 now. This chapter is chapter 6. is called Into Action. It's not into thinking. It's into action. And action is a magic word in Alcoholics Anonymous. It says, having made our personal inventory, what should we do about it? Now, that's a good question, isn't it? Well, we've been trying to get a new attitude. Remember, Dr. Jung said, ideas, emotions, and attitudes. With the guiding force of the lives, these people are suddenly cast to one side. So we're trying to get a new attitude. And a new relationship with our Creator. Remember back on page 45, it said the main object of this book, which enabled me to find a power greater than myself, which would solve my problem. So I'm trying to get a, a new attitude, a new relationship with my, with my Creator. And discover the obstacles in our path. And what are some of those obstacles? The resentments, the fears, the guilt, shame, remorse, the harm we've done to other people. Those are some of our obstacles in our path. We admit certain defects. And what are those defects? Column 5, selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate attitudes. We've ascertained in a rough way what the trouble is. We've put our, weak, put our finger on the weak items in our personal inventory. Now, these are about to be cast out. This requires action on our part, which, when completed, will mean that we've admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our defects. This brings us to the fifth step in the program of recovery mentioned in the preceding chapter. Okay, we've got to stop now and look at a couple of words. We know that step five says we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. But if you'll notice here in the narrative, he said this requires action on our part, which when completed will mean that we've admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our defects. In the step itself, he used the word wrongs. But in the narrative here, he uses the word defects. And people used to ask Bill about this. And 
They would say, Bill, why did you use wrongs in step five, but in the narrative you used the word defects? And by the way, Bill, what's the difference anyhow between a wrong in five, a defect in six, and a shortcoming in seven? Now, Joe, we've known two ladies that worked with and for Bill for years, and they both tell us the same thing. People would ask Bill that question, and he would kind of rear back and smile. And he said, when I took English and writing courses in college, they taught me not to use the same words over and over and over. Shows how dumb you are if you do. You know, you know, you know, you know. (laughs) He said, there's really no difference in these things. He said, in step four... We're going to find those things that block us from God. In step five, we're going to talk about them to another human being. In step six, we're going to be willing to have God remove them. In step seven, we're going to ask him to take them away. He said, you can call them anything you want to. A wrong, a fault, a mistake, a defect, a shortcoming, a personality flaw, or whatever you wish to. And we're convinced in our mind that Bill just simply used these words interchangeably so he wouldn't be repeating himself over and over and over using the same term. Later on, I followed it up into the 12 and 12. And not only does he does it in a 12 and 12, he does it even worse there than he did in the big book. And we're going to see him do it again here two or three times in this area of five, six, and seven. He said this is perhaps difficult, especially discussing our defects. There he does it again. Instead of wrongs, he uses the word defects. With another person. We think we've done well enough at admitting these things to ourselves. Well, there's doubt about that. In actual practice, we usually find that a solitary self-appraisal is insufficient. Many of us aren't necessary to go much further. We'd be more reconciled discussing ourselves with another person when we see a good reason why we should do so. Well, the best reason first. If we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. It's a good good idea and good reason to go ahead and do the fifth step so we won't, we can overcome the drinking. Here's a solitary self-appraisal was insufficient. I did the very best I could do filling out these forms with the limited knowledge that I have. And by the way, I don't know of anybody in AA anywhere that's ever done this inventory process perfectly. So you won't be the first, so don't even try. <laughs> but a solitary self-appraisal is insufficient. I did the best I could do with filling out these forms. Uh, to give you an idea why a solitary self-appraisal is insufficient, I can look around the rooms here today and see your defective character very, very plainly. There's one sitting right here on the front row. See, there's nothing between me and Jim except air. I can see him plainly. He can see me plainly. But you see, I can't see me plainly because there's a lifetime of rationalization and justification in me that I just can't see past. I need another human being to look at me and look at these things objectively to help me see things that I couldn't see. The book says, time after time, newcomers have tried to keep to themselves certain facts about their lives. Trying to avoid this humming experience, they've turned to easier methods. Almost invariably, they got drunk. Having persevered with the rest of the program, they wondered why they fell. 
Well, we think the reason is that they never completed their house cleaning. They took inventory all right, but hung on to some of the worst items in stock. They only thought they had lost their egoism and fear. They only thought they had humbled themselves. But they had not learned enough of humility, fearlessness, and honesty in the sense we find it necessary until they told someone else all their life story. Now, that's the little statement that fouled us up in step four. Didn't know how to do step four, so we read about all our life story, and we started writing our life story for a step four. And like we said yesterday, I didn't really learn anything to contribute to my alcoholism by the writing of my life story. If the guy I took it to, if he had really known what he was doing, he might have been able to help me see these things. But he didn't know any more about it than I did. So he just read it and threw it in the waste paper basket. Ninety-five percent of my life story has nothing to do with my alcoholism anyhow. But I'll tell you what I've done. If I've done the inventory the way the big book says, I've shared all my life story resentment-wise. They didn't come in my mind just yesterday. They've been popping in my head as far back as I can remember. Some of mine went all the way back to my early childhood. I've shared all my life story resentment-wise. If I did the inventory the way the book says, I've shared all my fears. Fears, I've shared all my life story fears-wise. Those fears didn't come in my head just today. They've been popping in my head as far back as I can remember, all the way back to my childhood. If I've shared all my harms done to others, sexually and otherwise, I've shared all my life story harms-wise. I didn't hurt people just yesterday. I've been hurting people all my life. My mother said to me one time, she said, Charlie, you were the meanest kid I ever saw. She said, I had a little problem loving you myself. When mama's got a problem loving you, look out, there's something going on. I shared all my life story harms-wise. And you know, that really is my life story. It revolves around resentments and fears and harms and guilt and remorse and all that kind of stuff. So if we've done it the way the big book says to do it, you know, we have no argument with this statement at all. We have shared all of our life story with another human being. Now, here's why we really need to do it. More than most people, the alcoholic leads a double life. He's very much the actor. To the outer world, he presents his stage character. This is the one he likes his fellows to see. He wants to enjoy a certain reputation, but knows in his heart he doesn't deserve it. The inconsistency is made worse by the things he does on his sprees. Coming to his senses, he's revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. These memories are a nightmare. He trembles to think someone might have observed him. As fast as he can, he pushes his memories far inside himself. He hopes they will never see the light of day. He is under constant fear and tension, and that makes for more drinking. Psychologists are inclined to agree with us. We have spent thousands of dollars for examinations. We know but a few instances where we've given these doctors a fair break. We have seldom told them the whole truth, nor have we followed their advice. Unwilling to be honest with these sympathetic men, we were honest with no one else. 
Small wonder many in the medical profession have a low opinion of alcoholics and their chance of recovery. You know, I think we have to face the fact that we alcoholics have become the world's greatest con artists. You have to if you're going to be a practicing alcoholic. You can't be a practicing alcoholic unless you learn how to lie, how to, how to steal, how to cheat, how to con, how to manipulate. And I think the one we have to con the most is ourselves. I don't think we could live with ourselves if we had to honestly see what's going on when we're out there doing our thing. But you see, we never have to see those things. Because we have that convenient little thing called resentments. And we play them over and over and over in our head and gradually transfer all blame to others and make ourselves as pure as the driven soul. Now, if you've been doing that for 5, 10, 15, 20, 30, or 40 years, it's almost impossible to be honest with yourself. We do the best we can in step four. Now then, I need to take this to another human being, one who has walked this walk before me, one who understands steps four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, according to the Big Book Alcoholics Anonymous, and have them help me see those things I can't see about me. They're not going to change anything in column one. They're going to change anything in column two. They're probably going to change some things in common three, or column three, where I said this particular thing was, was caused by the sex instinct. He said, oh, no, 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 no. You're just trying to build your self-esteem here. That's all you're doing. Sex really doesn't have a hell of a lot to do with this. Probably not going to change anything in column four. May change some things in column five. I said this one was caused by fear. He said, oh, no. No, this is just plain damn dishonesty. That's all this is. And he helped me see things about me I can't see. The greatest spiritual minds in the world today will tell you the same thing. They never, never make decisions without first checking it with somebody else to make sure they're looking at it truthfully. You know, I've been sober 35 years. I'm coming on 36 and I've got a sponsor today, and he's been sober the same length of time I have, six months more than I have. He never lets me forget it either. He reminds me of that. <laughs> and if I've got something real important in my life that I've got to make a decision on, I always go talk to him. And I'm amazed how many times he says, Charlie, you're blowing smoke up your tail again. This is not true. And he helps me see things I can't see about me. That old rationalization and justification steps in and makes me believe some things that aren't true sometimes. I don't think we'll ever get over it. We need this. Now, I know confession is good for the soul. And if you belong to a religion that requires it, you need to go do that. But I still think we need then to take this to somebody who really understands our program. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, according to the big book. Yeah, otherwise, it's just going to be a confession. But those that really understand this can help us see the things we can't see about ourselves. Page 74. Page 74 deals with who to take this thing with. Now, you've got to remember, in 1939, when the book was published, 
the first person in California, they didn't have an AA sponsor to go to. The first one in Florida didn't have an AA sponsor. It was difficult for them to find somebody to take this fifth step with. That's what page 74 is dealing with. But today we got plenty of good AA sponsors. We got plenty of good AA members that understand step four, five, six, seven, eight, and nine and can help us see those things we can't see. For me, that's the criteria for who we should take it with. If you, if you belong to that religion, go do it. And hopefully, hopefully the priest might be a member of AA. And they can really help you with it. But if they don't understand 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, and 9, then we need to get with somebody that understands those things, can help us really see these things that we just can't, simply can't see for ourselves. Page 75 tells us how to do this step. Uh, by the way, Donald Rees, Donald Rees, have a, have a credit card here of yours. Be up here after the meeting. Let me have that. Yeah. I better put that in my pocket now. <laughs> said when on page seventy five, when we decide who is to hear our story, we waste no time. There's that time factor again. We have a written inventory and are prepared for a long talk. We explain to our partner what we're about to do and why we have to do it. He should realize that we're engaged upon a life and death errand. Most people approached in this way will be glad to help. They'll be honored by our confidence. I went over to see my sponsor, Franklin, at that time, and he knew I was coming. I said, well, I'm here to do my inventory. And he said, that's good, Joe. I said, but first of all, let's you and I do the third step prayer and ask God to be with us in this process. That's the kind of sponsor that he was, thank God. And we sat there and began to do my inventory. Now, this well, these, these forms really come in handy now. I mean, really come in handy. Now, I can discuss these items from left to right. Rather than from top to bottom, column to column, I go from left to right, all the way across, gleaning all the information that I can from those columns, and him asking me questions about this particular incident or person, how it affected me, what they do, and what I should have done. Ask me all those questions all the way across. Keeps us in some kind of an order, too. And I can talk about these things all I wish to. I can tell someone else all my life story, resentment-wise, now. And this will keep us in order. We get through with that first one, and we go to the second one. Discuss it all the way across, left to right, all the way across, gleaning all the information that we can from it. Him asking me questions, him asking me questions about these situations. Helping me see things I couldn't see. When that's done, we go to the next one, and the next one, and the next one. Keeps you in some kind of order and helps you see things that you couldn't see by him asking questions of, of things about the, these situations. Very, very important at these forms at this time. Our book says that we pocket our pride and go to it, illuminating every twist of character, every dark crane of the past. Once having taken this step, withholding nothing, we get some more promises. Here's some more promises now. We can look the world in the eye. We can be alone at perfect peace and ease. Our fears fall from us. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. We may have had certain spiritual beliefs, but Step we Step two, we came to believe. But now we have begin to have a spiritual experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. 
we feel as we're on a broad highway walking hand in hand with the spirit of the universe. I don't know about you, but I used to lay awake nights thinking, if I could ever get all this stuff back to zero, if I could ever fix those particular situations, everything would be okay. Well, now after doing this inventory and doing step five, I could see the steps ahead. I was anxious then to do these steps ahead because I wanted to get it back to zero just one time. And this was a starting place for me to do that. And I love this step five and the information that I learned from it because then I could repair the damage done in the past. Now, if you've done steps four and five, you've done a lot of work up to this point. You're probably tired. <laughs> Big Bus going to give you a little rest stop. Returning home, we find a place where we can be quiet for an hour. <laughs> he didn't say 62 days, did he? <laughs> Every time he mentions time, it's right now. Carefully reviewing what we've done, we thank God from the bottom of our heart that we know him better. We don't know him yet, but we know him better. Taking this book down from our shelf, we turn to the page which contains the 12 steps. Carefully reading the first five proposals or steps, we ask if we've omitted anything, for we're building an arch through which we shall walk a free man at last. Is our work solid so far? Are the stones properly in place? Have we skimped on the cement put into the foundation? Have we tried to make mortar without sand? And again, he's referring to this wonderfully effective spiritual structure, the building of the personality change, sufficient to recover from alcoholism. Step one, willingness was the foundation. Step two, believing was the cornerstone. Step three, he told us, is an arch through which we'll pass to freedom. And step three was the keystone of that arch. Now we've put two more stones in place. We're gradually building this spiritual experience as we go through the steps. Page 76. If we can answer to our satisfaction, we then look at step six. We have emphasized willingness as being indispensable. Are we now ready to let God remove from us all the things which we have admitted are objectionable? Can he now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something we will not let go, we ask God to help us be willing. That's all of step six. And if you'll notice, he didn't say a thing in there about defects of character. Step six says we're entirely ready to have God remove these defects of character. But here he didn't say anything about defects of character. What he did say are those things which we have admitted are objectionable. Now, surely, surely... As we took our inventory, and we looked out in that old fifth column, and we saw that old selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate human being we had become, when we could see that those are the things that cause us to do the things that creates harms and hurts for other people and causes them to retaliate and causes us to resent, that those are the things that cause us to have all the fears that we got. That those are the things that cause us to hurt other people sexually and otherwise. 
then surely that type of character has now become objectionable to us. And if so, and if we're willing to have God remove those objectionable things, then we've already done step six. But please don't make the mistake I did. Because I was convinced that God is all-powerful, and I still am today. And I was convinced that He can do anything He wants to, and I'm still convinced of that today. And I thought all I would need to do would turn to God and say, Okay, God, here I am. Warts and all. Zap me and give me the twenty-nine ninety-five special. And I'd never have to worry about that again. But I found out that it doesn't work that way. Because if I want God to remove those things from me, then I have to be willing to do my part. And sometimes when we see those things, even though we can see they're objectionable to us, sometimes we're still not willing to turn them loose. Now, we human beings are funny things. Sometimes we would rather sit in today's pain and suffering because we've kind of learned how to handle that. We would rather sit in today's pain and suffering than take a chance on changing in the future because we don't know what future change will bring. If I'm going to have to get rid of my selfishness, then how am I going to get what I want? If I'm going to have to get rid of my dishonesty, how in the world am I going to make a living? I go, I knew nothing about honesty when I came here. If I'm going to have to get rid of my self-seeking, frightened attitude, well, where am I going to get the courage to do the things I need to do? If I'm going to have to get rid of my inconsideration of other people and start considering them, then who's going to consider me? <laughs> and sometimes we would rather sit in today's pain and suffering than take a chance on changing. And again, I went to my sponsor and I said, I don't think I can do step six and seven. He said, why? I said, because if God removes all my character defects, I'm not going to have any personality left at all, period. <laughs> And he said, you're about 100% right. <laughs> but he said, what you don't understand is if God takes those things away from you, they're going to have to be replaced with something else. And he said, what replaces them will be so much better than anything you've ever had before. You'll wonder why it took you so long to get around to having God, asking God to replace them. But he said, Charlie, you'll never know that unless you're willing to take the chance. And the book tells me, can he now take them all, every one? If we still cling to something and will not let go, we ask God to help us be willing. Prayer again. Every one of these action steps recognizes self cannot overcome self. We're always going to have to have God's help. And through the help of my sponsor and by asking God to help me be willing, I finally became willing to turn loose of those things. Now, when ready, we say something like this. 
my Creator, I'm now willing you should have all of me good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character. Whoop, whoop. We're in step seven now. Step seven says shortcomings, and here he calls them defects. You see what he's done to us? He interchanged these words back, and he confused the hell out of us. That's what he did. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. Grant me strength as I go out from here to do your bidding. Amen. We have then completed step seven. And like I said, I thought all I'd have to do would be ask God to take them away, and they would automatically be gone. But then once again, God's not going to allow another hole in my personality. I've got enough holes in my head already. If this old selfishness is going to disappear, if God's going to take it away, He can't leave a blank in my personality. It'll have to be replaced, and the only thing that can replace it is unselfishness. And unselfishness does not come automatically. If I want God to take away my selfishness, then I must, in every situation that comes up, gather all the willpower I can and get all the help I can from God and start trying to practice unselfishness. And oh, that's very, very difficult for me to do. But over a period of time, as God reboots and as I practice the opposite, slowly, 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 the old idea dies and a new idea takes its place. And over a period of years, I have become a relatively unselfish human being. Practice, 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 practice. If I want him to take away my dishonesty, then I must in every situation that comes up, with all the willpower I can muster and all the help I can get from God, I must practice being honest. And my God, it was almost impossible for me to do that in the beginning. But with God's help, I started trying to practice honesty. I quit lying so much. I quit stealing. I quit doing those things with God's help. And slowly, slowly, God removed the dishonesty, and I became a more honest human being. Practice, practice, practice. If I want to even take away my self-seeking, frightened attitude... And I've got to muster up all the courage I can and with God's help force myself to do those things I was afraid to do. And just as importantly to force myself to quit doing those things I was afraid to quit. And slowly, 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 the old idea dies and a new one takes its place. Today I'm a human being that acts most of the time with faith and courage. Fear doesn't bother me very much anymore. But it takes time to do this. Practice, practice, practice. If I won't even take away my inconsideration of others, then I must force myself with all the strength I can gather and everything I can get from God to start trying to consider other people first. Their needs and their wants and their desires, damn near impossible for people like me to do. But as we practice at it, it slowly, slowly becomes a habit and the old idea dies, and a new one takes its place. And my sponsor was 100% right. 
You know, life is so much better since I've become an unselfish human being. Life is so much better since I've become an honest person. Life is so much better since I've become a person with faith and courage. Life is so much better when I've become a considerate human being. And he was right. I wondered why it took me so long to do it. Yeah. Now, God's not going to do this for us by himself. Now, he gave us self-will. He said, you can keep it as long as you want it. He said, I'll let you die on it if that's what you want to do. We must do our part. And as we practice over and over, God removes and we practice the opposite. We change into different human beings. I have been reborn. I have been reborn. I'm not what I was when I came to the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm beginning to realize now what the book means when it said some of us tried to hold on to our old ideas. And the result was nil until we let go completely. You can't become selfish and unselfish at the same time. You're going to be one of the two. You can't become honest and dishonest at the same time. You're going to be one of the two. Always, always, we have to do our part and work at it. I think we're the luckiest people in the world. You know, most people out there are sick. Most of them are going to the grave sick, not even knowing they're sick. We not only know what's wrong with us, we found that out in steps four and five. Through steps six and seven, we have a way to change that situation. And we get to live two lifetimes in one lifetime. Most people never get that opportunity. Now, make no mistake about this. If you buy into this idea, then that means from this day on, you are responsible for what you are. If you stay selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate, that must mean that's the way you want to be. Because we don't have the luxury of blaming it on mother anymore. Can't blame it on daddy. Can't blame it on God and can't blame it on society. If we stay screwed up, it's because we want to stay screwed up. We don't have to be that way. Most people don't get this chance, Joe. You know, there's always a paradox in AA, isn't there? Everything's exactly opposite of what I thought it was going to be. The paradox here. To give you an idea of what a paradox is, how many of you have ever called your sponsor so you could listen? <laughs> a few hands. Most of us call so we can talk, right? It's supposed to be listening. You end up listening. You. you should. The paradox in this two steps is this. It took the doctor's opinion in the first four chapters to do steps one and two. Three and a half pages to do step three, eight pages to do step four, four pages to do step five, and the whole chapter was working with others. The paradox is this, that two of the biggest steps in all of Alcoholics Anonymous is on two little paragraphs. That's the paradox. These steps here are the tools of change. They're also the tools of acceptance. There was a movement here a while back about acceptance. Like people just walk around accepting things, you know. I never could do that. Acceptance is not an event. It's a process. And this is the process. Six and seven. Two of the biggest steps in all of Alcoholics Anonymous. And where do these come from? These are the two steps that Bill added to the tenets of the Oxford group. And there's a story in that other big, big book about this guy named Saul. 
S-A-U-L. Saul was riding his, the way I read it, was riding his ass on the way to, to Damascus. That's what it said. That's what it said. Big bolts of lightning come down and knocked him off his ass on his ass. That's the way I read it. <laughs> Paul, Saul's standing there dusting himself off. A big booming voice said, hey, Saul, can we talk? Now you guys' attention. He said, yeah, we can talk. What do you want to talk about? Maybe alcoholism got our attention, too. He said, Saul, you're a very selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, frightened, and inconsiderate individual. And you've harmed an awful lot of people, basically. So he told him that. And I want you to not do that anymore. He said, well, how do you not do that? He basically said, do six and seven. If you'll do those things, then you'll change. And when you change, we'll call you Paul. And we all know that Paul was one of the greatest writers the world's ever known. And sometime in Corinthians, they asked the guy, Paul asked, the guy asked Paul a question. He said, hey, Paul, said, what is the secret to life? Everybody wants to know what the secret to life is. And he said, the secret to life is daily dying. The old Saul had to die, so the new Paul came alive. Six and seven, two of the biggest steps in all of Alcoholics Anonymous. By the time I got to six and seven, a little doubt began to come into my mind. Can he really, can he really do this? I see what I have become. Can he really change me? Really? A little doubt became in. And I had to reaffirm a, a statement I read other, er, earlier. God either is or isn't. Either he can or he can't. What's my choice going to be? And I had to choose to believe that he could. And I set about to do that. And see, I see the kind of change. I see what I had become. The change is now I'm trying to be what? Trying to become that which God intends for me to be. Six and seven is the tools of change. Then the tools of acceptance. I have accepted what I've become because I'm not that way anymore. Thank God. Through six and seven. Two of the biggest steps in all of Alcoholics Anonymous. Tell me about the time you bought the salad. Oh, yeah. As as an example. Yeah, an example. I uh, went to the grocery store one time. Phyllis was working. I liked her being self-supporting also. (laughs) And I went by the the Safeway in our area and picked up some salad dressing and some salad stuff to go home and cook a steak for her when she came home from from work. And... uh, I was paying up at the cash register, and this little girl gave me change for a $20 bill, but I had only given her 10 And I stood right there and watched her, and I took the money and put it in my pocket and walked out the door. See, I thought it was worth a lot more than that. I sold out for $10. I I thought it was worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. I got out in my car, and I felt about that big. And I got back out of my car, went back in there, and I said, you counted me up too much change. Here's your $10 back. She said, boy, I sure do appreciate that. said, uh, I would have had to pay for that, you know. And I said, well, uh, she said, thank you for being honest. And I said, well, I'm a member of a fellowship that requires me to be honest. And she said, I've never heard of a fellowship like that before. <laughs> and I said, well, I haven't either. But until then. So the next time I walked out, I felt good again. Ten little dollars, sell it out for that, being dishonest for ten bucks. God, I thought it was worth a lot more than that. Practice, 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 and practice.
And slowly those things become habitual. And the old dies and a new one takes its place. Just that simple. Now, we got rid of resentments. That was replaced with love, patience, tolerance, compassion, and goodwill. We got rid of fear. That was filled with faith and courage. We looked at the people we've harmed, but we really haven't done anything about the removal yet of the guilt and the remorse associated with those people we've harmed. And if I want to be a complete human being again and want God to direct my entire thinking, and I've got to clean out this storeroom back here in the back of my head that's filled with guilt and remorse. And it's long been known how you do that. The world is known forever that you get rid of guilt and remorse by making restitution for those things you've done in the past that end up hurting others. Now, the original alcoholics in our fellowship did not like the word restitution. And Bill didn't like it either. So he decided to change that from restitution to making amends, which is the same thing. It's just a little easier and softer. I don't know of anybody in AA that really, really, really likes to make restitution or to make amends. Nobody wants to have to go out and apologize to people for what we've done in the past. Nobody wants to take from today's money and livelihood to pay back for things we've stolen in the past. The only question is, can we afford not to? Can we afford not to? You know, I've yet to see anybody in our AA and read the steps off the wall and say, man, that steps eight and nine look like lots of fun. I can hardly wait until I get there. You know, nobody wants to do this. But the question is, can we afford not to do it? Way back in the forward to the second edition, we were talking about the history and talked about when Bill called on Bob. It sounded like Dr. Bob got sober immediately and never had another drink. But that really isn't true. Dr. Bob had one more drunk left in him. Not too long after Bill called on him, Dr. Bob found it necessary, he thought, to go to the medical convention over here in New Jersey. And his wife, Ann, begged Bill not to let him go. said, Bill, if he goes over there, he'll get drunk. He does it every year. Bill said, let him go. That he's going to have to learn to live in society where there's always going to be plenty of alcohol. If he gets drunk, we'll do something about it when he gets back. Sure enough, Dr. Bob went to the convention, got drunk, came back to Akron drunk, showed up at his nurse's home. And she called Ann and she said, come and get him. He's drunk. And said, get him sobered up because he's got surgery scheduled in the morning. And he's the only doctor on staff that can do this particular surgery at the present time. Dr. Bob was a proctologist. <laughs> now, I'm not sure where my procto is, but I'm glad he wasn't working on it the next morning. <laughs> They went over and they got him and they brought him home, Bill and Ann did. And they walked him and they coughed him and they sobered him up to the best of their ability. Next morning, Bill takes him to the hospital. Parking lot of the hospital, Dr. Bob said, Bill, I can't do this surgery. I'm sick and I'm shaking and I'm trembling and I'm going to hurt somebody. 
And Bill reached in the back seat of the car and got out a bottle of beer, popped the top on it and said, drink this and you'll be okay. Dr. Bob drank the beer, went upstairs, did the surgery, and sure enough, it came out just fine. The only problem is Bill's waiting on him down the parking lot. Dr. Bob disappears. Bill waits for two or three hours. And he assumes that the beer's triggered the allergy and Bob has sneaked off and he's running again. Goes back to Dr. Bob's house. And Bill and Ann wait all afternoon. Late, late, late evening, Dr. Bob shows up at home. And he's sober. And Bill said, where in the hell have you been? He said, I've been going up and down both sides of the street, making amends to those I've harmed in the past. He never would do that before. That's why he never could apply their program to the depth necessary to recover. He was afraid to make amends. He was afraid people would find out he's alcoholic, and he would lose what little profession he had left. He didn't know that everybody already knew it anyhow. <laughs> the day he made his amends was the last drink he ever took, that bottle of beer, June the 10th, 1935. Now, if it's good enough for Bob... It's probably good enough for me to... Let's look at steps eight and nine now for just a little bit. Charlie. Generally, when you go to a step study meeting, when we're talking about step eight, <clears throat> somehow or other the conversation bleeds over to doing step nine. Well, step eight is a definite step that needs to be done. We make the list and become willing to the list. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, steps eight and nine were two of the best steps that I've ever done. I don't know about you, but I, I have been very physically ill from drinking. I mean, extremely ill from drinking. And I've had lots and lots of hard, hard hangovers, you see, suffered a lot. And, but those weren't the things that caused me to want to quit drinking. Not they were contributing factors. But the one, what really wanted me, caused me to want to quit drinking was the guilt, shame, and remorse that I had as a result I've done, harms I've done to other people. I just could not stand it when I was sober. I just couldn't do it. So making amends is also a way to make amends to yourself. We make the amends to others, and we, we feel better, and we feel free from those things. So let's look at it in that light. And we need our sponsors more in the area of Step 9 than we've ever needed our sponsor. We'll talk about that more later. Now we need more action, without which we find that faith without works is dead. Let's look at steps 8 and then later 9. We have a list of all the persons we've harmed. We take all those people off of column 1 that we've harmed and put them on one long list. And to whom we're willing to make amends. We made it when we took inventory. See, we've already got the list. It's already there. You take all those people off the column 1, put them on a long list. We subjected ourselves to drastic self-appraisal. We did that through those other columns in step five. Now we're about to go out to our fellows and repair the damage done in the past. We attempt to sweep away the debris which has accumulated out of our effort to live on self-will and run the show ourselves. More prayer, step eight. If we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. Remember, it was agreed in the beginning that we'd go to any length for victory over alcohol. And step eight, again, is a very simple little step. You make the list becoming willing to the list, and if we're not willing, we simply ask God to help us to become willing to make amends to them all.
Every action step recognizes self cannot overcome self. We've got to have God's help in all these situations. And if we haven't the will to do this, we ask until it comes. And again, I went to see my sponsor. And I said, I don't believe I'm going to be able to do steps eight or nine. He said, why? I said, because some of those people that I've harmed, they harm me just as bad as I ever harmed them. And I'll be damned if I'm going to make any amends to them. He said, well, as usual, you're getting the cart before the horse. He said, step eight doesn't talk about making amends. That's in step nine. He said, in step eight, you just have to make the list, which you've already done, and become willing to the list. And I said, well, that's the problem. He said, what do you mean? I said, I'm not willing to make amends to them all. Therefore, I can't do eight, and if I can't do eight, I can't do nine. He said, let me help you. I believe. He said, I believe I can help you. He said, let's look at your list. And I'd already shown it to him once before. He said, now, some of these people on this list, you love them, and they love you. And you really would like to make amends to them. He said, there's your daughter and your son and your mother and your father. And he said, I'm not sure about Barbara either, but we'll talk about that later on. He said, you'd like to make amends to them right now, wouldn't you? And I said, yeah, sure I would. He said, take their name off of that list, put them on another list, and call it right now. Can you do that? And I said, yeah. He said, we'll do it and come back. And I did. And he said, now then, there's some of these people on this list that you know. You know you're going to make amends to them. Not too keen about it. But sooner or later, you're going to do it. And I said, sure. He said, take their name off of this list and put them on a list called later. Can you do that? I said, I think so. And he said, do it and come back. And I did. He said, now, there's some on here you're really not sure about. You may or may not make amends to them. Is that right? And I said, sure. He said, take their name off and put it on a list and call it maybe. Can you do that? And I said, yeah. He said, do it and come back. And I did. And I came back and he said, now, all these that's left here are the ones that you're not ever going to make amends to. Right? And I said, you betcha. He said, take them, take them off of that list and put them on another list and label it never. Can you do that? And I said, yeah. And he said, do it and come back. And I did. And he said, now then, I want you to start making amends to these on the right now list. He said, by the time you're through with the right now list, I think you'll be ready to start on those on the later list. And he said, by the time you do those on the later list, I think you'll be ready to do those on the maybe list. And he reached in his billfold and took out $10. And he said, I'm going to bet you $10. By the time you're through with that maybe list, you'll be ready to start on the nevers list. And you know, the old fool was right. <laughs> he didn't let me take just three or four or five names and block myself off from the whole process. He gave me a way to become willing to make amends to them all by separating it into four different lists. It really did work for me. I wouldn't have thought of that, would you? Now, step eight, then, is quite simple. We make the list, which we've already done. We come willing to the list, 
And if we're not willing, then ask God to help us be willing until we become willing. And we're through with eight. Step nine is a very definite, multiple-part step. Step nine tells us the kind of amends we need to make. Direct amends. It tells us when to make them. Wherever possible. Now, a lot of times I hear people read how it works, and they read whenever possible. No, it says wherever possible. You tell an alcoholic to do something whenever, just forget it. It's not going to get done. (laughs) It said wherever possible. And then it tells us when not to make them, except when to do so would injure them or others. Now, Bill very carefully addresses all three of these issues in the following pages, paragraph by paragraph. The first thing is direct amends. And we think there's probably two kinds of direct amends. One of them is eyeball to eyeball, face to face, one on one. The purpose of me making my amends is not to get you to like me. Hopefully you will. But the purpose in making my amends is to get rid of my fear and my guilt associated with that thing, whatever it is. And if I go to you eyeball to eyeball, face to face, and make my amends to you to the best of my ability, I'll never have to worry about it again. You will have done all you're going to do to me right then. I will know I've done my utmost, and I can be free of that. He gives us an example of direct amends on page 77 in that paragraph there in the middle of the page. And it really starts with the third sentence in that paragraph. I don't know why, but that's where he started it. The question of how to approach the man we hated will arise. Everybody see that? This is a direct amend eyeball to eyeball. He said the question of how to approach the man we hated will arise. It may be he's done us more harm than we've done him. And though we may have acquired a better attitude toward him, we're still not too keen about admitting our faults. Nevertheless, with a person we dislike, we take the bit in our teeth. It's harder to go to an enemy than to a friend. But we find it much more beneficial to us. We go to him in a helpful and forgiving spirit, confessing our former ill feelings and expressing our regret. Under no condition do we criticize such a person or argue. Simply, we tell him that we will never get over drinking until we've done our utmost to straighten out the past. We're there to sweep off our side of the street, realizing that nothing worthwhile can be accomplished until we do so, never trying to tell him what he should do. His faults are not discussed. We stick to our own. Now, if our manner is calm, frank, and open, we'll be gratified with the results. In nine cases out of ten, the unexpected happens. Sometimes the man we're calling upon admits his own faults. So fuse of years standing melt away in an hour. Rarely do we fail to make satisfactory progress. Our former enemies sometimes praise what we're doing and wish us well. Occasionally they will offer assistance. It should not matter, however, if someone does throw us out of his office. We've made our demonstration, done our part. It's water over the dam. And every time I read that, I think about my cousin Gary. Gary and I were raised up next door to each other. It seemed to me like all of our life, all we did was fight each other, physically, verbally, 
every other way. We were just exactly alike, I guess. Never could run around together without fighting. So we kind of agreed not to run around together anymore. And I didn't see him, and he didn't see me. But one day when I got into this area of making amends, I was in this restaurant. And I've never been in that restaurant before or since. And I looked up, and Gary was at the front door waiting to be sat down. And I motioned him over. And he came over very reluctantly. He wasn't quite sure what I might do. And I asked him to sit down, and he did. I said, Gary, I've joined Alcoholics Anonymous and quit drinking, and I'm trying to get my life straightened out. And I'd like to ask you to forgive me for all the harm that I've caused you. He kind of relaxed, and he said, Joe, why don't you forgive me for the harm I've done you? The whole thing went away just like that. Now, the best part about this whole story is that from time to time, Gary comes to Alcoholics Anonymous. And when he does come, sometimes he comes to our group. It's been a long time since he's been there. But he's making progress. He used to be a daily drinker, now he's a periodic. See? So he's doing pretty good. And uh, that would have never happen had we not had that encounter a long time ago. See, God makes the wherever possible. Or is that odd or is that God? You see, God makes the wherever possible in a lot of cases. Now, if that kind of a man would work on somebody you hate, then surely it would work on those that you just kind of dislike. Probably work on those you're not too crazy about. I'll bet you'd work on somebody you love, too. Eyeball to eyeball, face to face, one-on-one. Another kind of direct demand is in equal proportion. Now, some of we alcoholics tended to uh, write hot checks we never did pick up, run up bills we never did pay, tear up automobiles we never did fix. We've hurt many people in the area of economics. Now, how do we go about making that kind of restitution? Bill handles that in the next paragraph. Most alcoholics owe money. I think that's the understatement of the year, isn't it? (laughs) We do not dodge our creditors, tell them what we're trying to do. We make no bones about our drinking. They usually know it anyway, whether we think so or not. Nor are we afraid of disclosing our alcoholism on the theory it may cause financial harm. Approaching this way, the most ruthless creditor will sometimes surprise us. Arranging the best deal we can, we let these people know we are sorry. Our drinking has made us slow to pay. We must lose our fear of creditors, no matter how far we have to go, for we're liable to drink if we're afraid to face them. I think what he's saying to me is this. That if I owe you money, I need to go see you. And say, now you and I both know that I owe you $1,200. And I'd love to pay you today, but I can't do it. But if it's okay with you, I'd like to start paying you $10 a week. And you'd rather have $10 a week than nothing. And I start paying you $10 a week. And some morning I wake up and I say, by golly, that sucker is all paid off. I don't owe him anymore, and I go to the next one. Now, you and I both know I owe you $1,400, $1,500. Can't pay you today, God, I'd love to, but I can't. But I'd like to start paying you about 20 a week, but this time I'm probably making a little more money. 
And I start paying you 20 a week. Next thing you know, I wake up and by golly, that one's paid off too. And I go to the next one and the next one and the next one. And some morning I wake up and by golly, they're all paid off. And the fear and the guilt and the remorse associated with those things are all gone. I've lived long enough to know and fully understand that time is going to pass. You can't stop it. I wish we could, but you can't. As it passes, I can use it for a worthwhile purpose and come out on the other end of it in good shape. Or I can let it slide and let it slide and let it slide and five or ten years from now be in the same kind of shape and maybe drunk over it in the meantime. You know, we, we, Joe and I had an old friend that used to live in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And his name was Dan, and Dan finally moved out to California. Dan would have been sober 50... 52 years this coming January. 52 years this January if he was still alive. He's dead now. Dan was 29 years sober. And he said to me one day, Charlie, I paid the last one of them last week. Took him 29 years to pay them. When Dan was in the drinking, he was down in Texas in the oil business. And he hooked them, and he hooked them big, too. Took him 29 years to pay them all back. I said, Dan, how do you feel? He said, man, I feel about eight foot tall. And Dan's a little bitty fellow, about five foot one. He said, this is the first time in my life that I can ever remember that I don't owe somebody something for what I've stolen from him in the past. Tell you how good a con artist he was. His wife, Sarah, who turned out to be a beautiful, beautiful Al-Anon, down in Texas when Dan was drinking, one day she took him to the State Insane Asylum in Big Springs, Texas, to have him admitted for alcoholic insanity. And the head psychiatrist interviewed Sarah, and then he interviewed Dan. And after a while, Dan left, and Sarah was locked up. <laughs> She stayed there for a year. They taught her how to live better electrically with all that kind of crap they do in there. Like to kill that woman. She said she forgave him for everything else, but she couldn't hardly forgive him for that one. That was the worst. So if old Dan could do it, I probably could too, you know. And I, and I hear some of you saying, and again, I hear awful good. I hear some of you saying, Charlie, that's probably true for a thousand or Fourteen hundred or fifteen hundred dollars. What if it's fifty thousand? What if it's a hundred and fifty thousand? What's if, what if it's a half a million? Could we pay that back? Well, I don't know why we can't. If we're smart enough to steal it, <laughs> we're probably smart enough to pay it back. You know, I think we forget from step three on. God's going to be with us. And if we are to do these things, God's going to make it possible, providing we are willing to do so. Dan was just one example. I don't know how much money was involved, but it was a hell of a lot of money. I know that much. And old Dan finally paid them all back. This thing really does work. I spent a lot of time at Dan's house and Sarah sitting across the table from them. Phyllis and I, they spoon feeding this AA fixing dinner for us, playing bridge, supposed to be playing bridge, where we were talking about AA, Allen on things. And he never, he always had a nice car, wasn't brand new, but a nice car, lived in a nice home. 
had nice furniture, went places all the all the uh, AA conference we ever wanted to go to, went on a cruise or two with him. So he had enough money in, in, in addition to pay back that money that he owed, you see. So he, he, he found a way to do it. Bottom of page 78, we're not going to go through all these examples. It just takes too long. But the bottom of page 78, it talks about criminal offenses. In the middle of page 79, it talks about where other people are involved. We need to consider others. You know, if it's going to hurt them or somebody else, we have to be very, very careful in this kind of situation. Over on page 80, it talks about him going to some other people and getting their permission before he made the amends because there's a possibility they would be hurt by it. The bottom of page 80, it talks about domestic problems. Page 81, it talks about sex outside of marriage. What are we going to do about those kind of things? You know, Joe and I both agree that I've never really had anybody come to me with questions about making amends. That we kind of can't find the answer for it here in the book somewhere. You know, it's pretty complete on all these different kind of situations. Our, our main suggestion is before you start making amends, get you a good sponsor. And then talk to that sponsor about these amends. Because I'm not sure, I'm, I'm not sure that we're capable of honestly seeing it good enough to see whether we should make it or whether we shouldn't make it, whether it will hurt somebody or whether it won't. And I know that's what I had to do finally. And some of those that I really wanted to make, and I would talk to him about them, and he'd say, No, you can't do that. If you do it, you're going to hurt them or somebody else just as bad. You're just going to have to wait. And over a period of years, finally, finally, the wherever possible became possible for them too. And I really got to make my last one here just a few years ago. And it was dealing with family issues. And I simply could not do that without hurting somebody else. And due to a death in the family, Finally, I was released and free to be able to go ahead and do that. And I just had to hold on to it in that time. Some of them, I said to him, you know, I believe if I make this amend, I'm going to hurt them. And he'd look at it and he'd say, no, not this time. He said, you just go ahead and make this one. It'll be okay. You know, I don't really think we're capable of determining by ourselves whether we should or shouldn't. It's where a good sponsor comes in. Let's go to page 83, third paragraph. There may be some wrongs we can never fully right. We don't worry about them. We can honestly say to ourselves that we would write them if we could. Some of these people are already dead and buried. Some of them, to make amends, would hurt them or others. We don't worry about them if we can honestly say that we would write them if we could. Some people cannot be seen. We send them an honest letter. There may be a valid reason for postponement in some cases, but we don't delay if it can be avoided. We should be sensible, tactful, considerate, and humble without being servile or scraping. As God's people, we stand on our feet. We don't crawl before anyone. 
And one mistake we see people making is they'll go to somebody to make their amends and they won't accept it. And we're just crushed by that. And we tend to want to go back and go back and go back and literally beg those people to forgive us. No. The book says we don't need to do that. Make our amends to the best of our ability. If they don't accept it, there's nothing we can do about that. About all we can do is hold ourselves in readiness. And if the opportunity comes to do it again at a later date, maybe so then. We don't have to beg anybody. As God's people, we stand on our own feet. We don't have to crawl. Joe? Always reminds me of a situation with a little daughter, Gail. I got divorced from the other lady. And now I start thinking real good. And I'm sitting at the bar thinking. And this time, I'm going to find me a woman that drinks. <laughs> I'm thinking good now. These women that don't drink are mean and ugly. And one night I looked up and pillows came in the door. And I'm sitting out the end of the bar like this. And the bartender said, Phyllis, what would you like to drink? She said, give me some of what he's drinking. And pretty soon we were introduced. Phyllis said, you know, Joe, you look like my third husband. And I said, my God, how many have you had? She said, two. I kind of like that. I said, did it hurt? She said, what? Did what hurt? I said, when you fell out of heaven. Isn't that something? I've been watching Phyllis. She'd been drinking and staying up late like I did. And Phyllis was the queen bee of the zebra lounge. You, you, you guys know her. She's the one who took up the collection to pay the jukebox. That's her. And we started drinking and running around together. And six or eight months later, we got married. And she had a little daughter by a previous marriage who was living with her dad at that time. And, and, we, and I liked her very much. And she came over to live with us. And Phyllis said, you know, we're drinking an awful lot. Let's, let's not drink so much in front of Gail. I said, that's a good idea. And I, I was wanting to do that, but not knowing that I couldn't quit, see. And uh, after 30 days, I couldn't stand it anymore got drunk again. Well, Phyllis and I were drinking together, and we couldn't go to the bar together without fighting. Because, you see, I came out of this marriage with a list of things that were about this long, that this one's not going to do that that other one did. Phyllis had a list of things about that long that this one's not going to do that that other one did. And now we're enforcing our list on each other. And God, did it get awful then. I'm telling you, that's a whole new story. We got so that we couldn't even drink together. So we made a deal. 41st Street in Tulsa is kind of halfway between north and south. And Phyllis could have the south half of 41st Street, 41st and south, and I get 41st and north. And we would meet at home from time to time and visit (laughs) and do our drinking. She does hers there.